So with that, let's go ahead and turn our attention. If you would grab your Bible and your outlines this morning, if you, uh, as we continue in our series that we've entitled DNA, looking at who we are as a church, a three-week series. We're in our second week now, looking through our uh, mission statement and trying to understand who we are as a church and what God is calling us uh, to look like. And last week we spent uh, our time in the Word in Isaiah chapter 6, focusing in on the top, if you will, I know that's not a pyramid, more of a triangle, uh, loving Jesus uh, to the point of transformation. You see, that's on the top because if we don't get that locked in, then nothing is going to trickle down. If we don't understand what it means to love Jesus to the point of transformation, we're going to have difficulty loving uh, each other and uh, our neighbors uh, when we are called to do so. And so last week we spent some time looking at Isaiah chapter 6 and learning that to love Jesus to the point of transformation means that Jesus has got to get a whole lot higher in our lives and in our priorities than everything else in this world. He's got to become supreme and we've got to exalt the majesty of Jesus. But as we learned last week, when we begin to exalt Jesus and put him in his proper spot, then that's going to make us look at ourselves and we're going to see ourselves as sinful, as depraved individuals, as people broken with all types of frailties and issues and struggles. And it's there that we're going to learn we have a problem. And it's there that we can confess our sin and we know that Jesus is faithful and just to forgive us. And it's there we can experience his mercy. And when we are transformed by his majesty and his mercy, God calls us to something. Just as he did uh, with Isaiah, we are called to engage in his mission after Isaiah sees Jesus high and lifted up. After he experiences the mercy that Jesus gives him by dealing with his sin, uh, Jesus then asks the question, who will go for us? And who will share the gospel for us? And Isaiah says, here am I, send me. And so the life of transformation isn't just seen in our worship of God in song, but it is living out the commands and sharing the gospel with all who need to hear it. But here's the thing. Loving Jesus to the point of transformation isn't all that it is to be a Christian. It isn't all that we're called to be a part of. Notice the next one begins to look inward. And today we're going to focus in on that second tier, if you will. Once we begin to love Jesus to the point of transformation, it will no doubt lead us to love each other. That is the people, a part of our church, those that are worshiping with us, those that have gathered together, who have been transformed by God. God says now that we are to love each other Uh, to the point of sacrifice. You see, God doesn't transform us just for our own good looks. He doesn't do it so that you and I can feel warm and fuzzy inside, but he does it so that you and I might be a blessing to those who are living their lives for Christ around us. You see, one of the things that we need to do, and we fail at it at times, is to understand to love Jesus to the point of transformation isn't just about you and God. You see, if we truly do love Jesus to the point of transformation, it will be seen in how we interact with one another. And so when you talk about loving Jesus to the point of transformation, then it must undoubtedly leave you, lead you to love differently. And what that means is, is our vertical relationship is corresponding with that horizontal relationship. We cannot say, and this is what 1 John reminds us of, we cannot say that we love God 
and hate our brothers. John says, God says, that when we do that, the truth of God is not in us and we're liars. And so to say we got this great relationship with God, but not with one another, is a contradiction in terms. To love Jesus to the point of transformation means we must love one another to the point of sacrifice. Now, when we talk on the issue of love, it is not something that we as a church have exclusive rights to. In our world, our world talks about love all the time. Turn on your radio, whether you listen to the oldies stations or the top 40 stations of today, you will hear songs of love. Whether you like classic movies or, or the new one that's just out, you will see themes of love over and over again. You see, the world loves love just like we do. The world loves to talk about love just like Christians do. So why is it that Jesus says that the world will know that we are his disciples by our love? If everybody's loving, then how in the world would our love supersede the love of that of the world? Well, to help you, there's a contrast of the kind of love that Jesus is talking about. Some years ago, there was a commercial, and I know I'm going to step on some toes here, but there was a beer commercial that was out. Budweiser had come out with a commercial, and it was a commercial about a manly man who was sitting with a group of people. And this manly man was finding himself just, just, just melting in love with, with the people around him. And at points, he was speaking these words of affirmation. It's just totally out of character for this manly guy to be talking such words of tenderness and care and love and concern. And at the point where the buzz line or the tagline was to take place, the punchline of the joke, you remember many of you, no doubt, where after he says that, he, he stops and says, I love you, man. I love you. Well, the world loves to say that. I love you, man. But the reason is the reason why that guy in the beer commercial did it. And the response was, well, you're not getting my drink. You see, in the world, our love is contingent on things. The world says, okay, I will love you if you do this, this, and this. Some of you right now, and this should be convicting some of the marriages in this place because some of you are loving one another in that way. Well, I'll love you if you do this for me. I'll do this for you if you take care of that. And some of you have this contract going on. That is not love. Love is different. And what God wants his church to be about is to not love as the world does because the world's love is self-seeking. And it is self-satisfying. What does it do for me? Biblical love says, what does it do for others? And so when we said, well, how are we going to fellowship as a church? How are we going to be a family, brothers and sisters in Christ, that live lives and live out relationships that honor God? When we sat together as a group of leaders some 10, 11 years ago, we came to this phrase, love each other to the point of sacrifice. Now, we didn't come up with that on our own because Jesus told his disciples, no greater love than this, than a man who lays down his life sacrifice for a friend. So today, I want to talk on the subject matter. Go ahead and flip that slide. Love to the point of what? You want me to love like that? Yeah, 
That's what God's calling us to. To love to the point of sacrifice. And we're going to see in our text this morning why we're called to do it, what it's supposed to look like, some of the things we're going to have to get rid of, and then see an example of who did it so very well. So let us turn in our Bibles to the book of Philippians this morning. Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 8. And I'd ask that you stand for the reading of God's Word. If you don't have a Bible, that's okay. Grab that pew rack Bible and the pew rack in front of you, and I'll help you out. We're going to be on page 980, page 980, and we're going to be there for the rest of our time, so you don't have to fumble through wondering where we're going to be at. Page 980, and you'll find our text, Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 8. This is what the Word of the Lord says to us through the servant, Paul. So if there's any encouragement in Christ any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy then by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. And do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he made himself nothing. Taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Let's pray. Father God, we come as your people, and Lord, we come from lives and encounters with people, Lord, that even in the best cases are just superficial. And Lord, you have not called your people to live in superficial relationships with one another. You've called us to join in fellowship with one another. You've called us to community, a common unity under the banner of Jesus Christ. And Lord, that means sacrifice. It's not good enough, Lord, for us just to be casual in our responses to one another. But you have called us to love each other as we love ourselves. To care for one another as we care for ourselves. Lord, we're going to need your Spirit's help And so we're thankful that you have taught us through your word. And so, Lord, open our hearts and minds this morning so that we may hear the truths of your word and that we may be doers of it as we leave this place. In Christ's name we pray. Amen and amen. Go ahead and be seated. If we're going to love to the point of sacrifice, then there are a couple things that we need to begin to do. And Paul tells the Philippian church... That if you want to love to the point of sacrifice, it's going to cost you. It's going to mean some things for you. And then he's going to give the example of all examples, Jesus Christ, who was the servant of all servants. And so notice in our text today, if we're going to love to the point of sacrifice, it begins by celebrating, celebrating the advantages to loving others. There are some great advantages to being a part of the church. And Paul begins by reminding us of some of those great advantages that come when we are together celebrating the grace of God in each other's lives. Now notice in our text, he begins with the phrase, so if there is dot, dot, dot. 
He's not asking maybe there might be. He's not bringing question into whether these things are true. He's not using this rhetorical question to cast doubt on the veracity of his statements. But literally, he is saying, since you enjoy the following, or because you desire the things I'm about to share, he says, I want you to think on these things. I want you to live out these things. And so notice the things that we should celebrate as Christians. There are four, and I'm going to go through them very quickly. Number one, we should uh, celebrate the courage that God gives. The courage that God gives. Notice, if there is any encouragement in Christ, that word encouragement is the Greek word parakalesis, which uh, speaks of the root word paraclete, not parakeet, but paraclete. And some of you have heard that word before because Jesus in the upper room with his disciples is about to tell his disciples, hey, I'm leaving you. And he starts talking about going and preparing a place for his disciples. And he says, I'll be back, but, but in the meanwhile, there's some things that are going to happen. I'm going to go to the cross. I'm going to lay down my life for many. I am going to be lifted up so that God might be glorified. And the disciples are going, wait, wait a minute, wait a minute. We want you here, Jesus. We don't want you to leave. And, and, and what's going to happen? And, and who's going to lead us? And who's going to teach us? And who's going to guide us after you're gone? And Jesus says, you don't have to worry. Be at peace because I'm sending a paraclete, a comforter, one who will come alongside of you to lead you and guide you. In essence, to cheer you on as you live for me. Paul says that in our relationship with God, we have one who comes alongside of us and encourages us. The best picture of that in a human uh, form is your parents sitting in the stands rooting you on when you're playing an athletic uh, event. There is nothing greater than having your fans in the stands rooting you on. My parents would come to events that I was a part of, come to sports, and it was wonderful to even hear in the crowd the singular voice of my dad. I could hear it in the crowd. Come on, son, you can do it. Come on, come on. You know, warm that bench like you've never warmed it before. You could hear the dad saying that. There's something great about being cheered on. And in our relationships with Christ, God says... I'm cheering you on. I'm not just cheering you on with words, but I'm there with you. I've sent your, my spirit into your life to lead you and guide you and to show you truth and to, and to keep you from error. I've done so because I love you and I want you to find joy in the journey. And these are the words that he shares. I'm coming and I'm going to walk beside you. We sang the song today, never once have I ever walked alone. Never once have you left me on my own. You are faithful. You are the faithful God. This this reminds us that we have been enabled and filled with courage. This is the kind of courage that God said over and over again to his young leader, Joshua, be strong and courageous. I am with you. You don't have to worry about what's going to be in front of you because I am by your side. So be very strong and be very courageous. What God does for us is he puts courage into us. And what a blessing that is to be a follower of Christ and know he's given us courage. Number two, he goes on and he says, I want to give you comfort. What an advantage. 
comfort, if we have any comfort from love. This word for the Philippians is a word that speaks about comfort in times of grieving. When we are experiencing loss and pain, when we are experiencing trouble, we are grieved. This last week, uh, one of our people who was in the first service uh, lost their job. Last week as he was heading out, I said, hey, brother, you have a great week. And he says, it's got to be better than the last week. And my response was, what's going on? After 30 years at the same job, 30 years, a man he did not know walked into his office and said, clean out your desk by the end of the day, you're done. A week and a half of some severance and some unpaid vacation time and have a great day. And tears rolled down that man's eyes and he says, I don't know what I'm going to do. I don't know where I'm going to go. I don't know what God has in store for us. But I know God is good and he's got a plan. And in that moment, he began to share with me the comfort that God had been bringing him. When it says comfort from love, the word picture that is here is so powerful. It is literally God coming down from heaven. It almost gives the picture, and I'll just help you do it. It's a picture of a dad getting on his knee to listen to his little toddler son and whispering in his toddler son's ears, it's going to be okay. It's going to be all right. You see, one of the advantages that we have is we've got a God in heaven who doesn't say, uh, and I'll, she'll remain nameless, one of our administrative assistants, who says when, when her kids come in, hey, just suck it up. Okay? She'll remain nameless, Jill's her name. But anyway, <laughs> if anybody's looking for a job as an administrative assistant, I think mine just quit, by the way. But anyway... But God doesn't say, suck it up. Parents say that all the time. I mean, my son a couple of weeks ago was in the back stairwell when he should have been in church. And one of the other kids comes and says, Noah's hurting. Something happened. He was jumping stairs. And, and I said, well, it's not broken, son. Come to worship service. And then at the end of the service, his ankle was as big as a cantaloupe. And I said, okay, maybe it might be broken. We maybe go to the doctor. But we're that way with, with parents. But God doesn't do that. God doesn't say, okay, hey, just grit your teeth and bear it. I mean, it's just a little pain. It's just a little problem. Just, just get over it. He doesn't say, hey, it's just a figment of your imagination. You know, hey, so get your mind back into the real world. Man, come on. You're in la-la land. No, God gets on his knees and he whispers to us, hey, there's hope. There's grieving in the morning or grieving in the evening, but joy comes within the morning. There's comfort that comes in being saved. There's communion. There's a communion, not the communion of the elements of the bread and the cup that we celebrate each, each month. But he says if there's any participation with the Spirit, that word participation is the word koinonia. It's where we get the word fellowship from. We have a commonality. And I, just a quick word play here. You cannot have fellowship without participation. Some of you say, well, I, I want to be a part of a church that fellowships. Well, that means you've got to get involved. You cannot not be involved in fellowship at the same time. Fellowship demands participation, and participation begets fellowship. And so we have this participation, and here's what God's Word says. It is says, as believers, we have experienced the work of the Spirit in our lives. 
This work that has enabled our eyes to see by faith the salvation that God gives. It has empowered us to say no to sin and worldly lust. And it has endowed us with certain gifts to use within the body. And Paul says, hey, being a member in the body of Christ has its benefits. It is a good thing to be a part of. Because it brings a participation. It is not only you that are a part of the Holy Spirit's uh, uh, active participation. But it is all those who have bowed the knee to Jesus. He goes on and he says, well, there's also compassion. There is affection and sympathy. This is best seen in the reconciliation of sinners by God to become saints. The idea here is that all of us who have bowed the knee to Jesus, all those who have accepted Christ as our Savior, have experienced the affection and sympathy of God. Here's what I mean. We are sinners. We were hell-bent on going our own way. And here we experience the love of Christ. Now we know from as little boys and girls that Jesus loves me, this I know. For the Bible tells me so, little ones to him belong. They are weak, but he is strong. Yes, Jesus loves me. But as we grow older in our faith, we begin to understand what that love really looks like. I am dumbfounded that my father loved me as much as I love my boys. I, I, I don't have words to think that someone loved me as much as I love my three little rascals. I mean, I, I love my boys, and to think that my parents loved me in that way is a mind-boggling idea and thought. And here's the thing. Jesus, as I've grown in my relationship with him, has reminded me over and over again of the immense love that he has for us. That he was willing to give up all that he had so that he might die for us. And here's the thing, the gospel is God's love, his affection, and his sympathy. Here's the thing, God could have stayed in heaven and done his own thing and just led us to an eternal damnation in hell. He could have done that, but God looked at, at earth he looked at us as a sinful humanity, and he began to have sympathy on us. We see that many times in his earthly ministry, that he looks out to the crowd, and he sees the crowd as a harassed crowd. It's a crowd without a shepherd. It's a hurting crowd. And it says that he's cut to the heart. That word sympathy literally means the insides of, of a person are undone because of the desire to help someone in their time of need. And here's what Jesus did. He saw us in our plight, and he was filled with love. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. And so he's filled with love. But he doesn't just sit there and say, well, I wish I could do something. No, sympathy then says, I'm going to take their place, and I'm going to be the sin offering for them so that they may be saved. Now, you say, Tim, okay, here's all these four things. And yeah, I have experienced the courage. I've experienced the comfort. I've experienced the communion and the compassion. I've experienced that. And let me ask you this question this morning. Was it simply just through the word of God that you experienced that? Here's the thing. God doesn't say, okay, I'm your courage. I'm your comfort. I'm your communion. And I'm your compassion. He just, and he just writes that down. Four quick sentences. Have you noticed in the Bible that we experience these things through the word as God has revealed them in relationship with people? How do we know that God is our courage? 
Well, we see that God is the courage to Joshua. We see that God was a comfort to those who were hurting. I think of some of the uh, women in the Bible that were dealing with infertility, and God comes and he whispers in their ears loving words of hope and, and compassion. We see communion when we see the New Testament church gathering together under the apostles' teaching and learning and growing and serving one another. And here's what I'm getting at. You and I experience this stuff not in a bubble. We don't experience this in an ethereal or esoteric manner. It is done in a very earthly way. How do we experience these things? By living lives with one another. You see, as we love Jesus to the point of transformation, these things will come out in our relationships with one another. It is seen in the Word of God being manifested in our lives so that we can then come on a Sunday morning or on a Wednesday night in our Bible study and we can fill someone with courage and we can fill someone with comfort and we can share communion with one another and show compassion. This is what we mean when we say that we are to be the hands and feet of Jesus. It's not like Jesus is doing all of this, you know, sending a, a biplane, if you will, over, over the city of Sugar Grove with a banner that says, I can be your courage, comfort, communion, and compassion. He says, no, what I'm going to do is I'm going to transform a person who will then find another person who's been transformed, and they're going to love each other in such a way that they're Jesus to one another. As they've experienced Jesus in their own lives, now they get to share that experience with one another. And so here we have this. And it's so very important that we understand this. We have made Christianity a singular thing, a personal thing. It's about my relationship with Jesus. No, brothers and sisters, it is not that it ends with your relationship with Jesus, but your relationship to Jesus should overflow into a relationship with one another. And that's what we want to get to as a church. But here's the problem. The Philippian church couldn't figure it out. They couldn't get it down, and here's why. Because Paul has to speak to them, and he says, hey, one of the next things you got to do is once you celebrate the things you have with one another, is you got to start concentrating, write this down, concentrating on the assignment that you have to loving others. So the Philippian church is, is wanting this, and Paul's pleading for them to see it. And if the Philippian church is struggling with it, i got to believe Village Bible Church here in Sugar Grove is struggling with it as well. And so notice what he says. He says, you've got an assignment. And your assignment is to do some things a little differently. Notice what the text says. It says, now I want you to make my joy complete by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. So here's what he wants us to do. Paul says, okay, if you are going to see these four advantages begin to be lived out in your life and in the life of others, you have an assignment. And here's your assignment as a follower of Jesus Christ. To bring glory to God, your job is to have the most vibrant relationship you can have with God, the deepest relationship you can have with Christ, and that deep and vibrant relationship is something that transforms you in such a way that you have no other choice but to share it with others. There's no greater joy than this. As a follower of Jesus Christ, to be able to stand up here, to be transformed by God's word each and every week, 
and to tell you about it. I get all the fun. I feel bad for you guys. Because I get to study this and then you kind people give me a little time just to talk about my relationship. Let me tell you something. I'm transformed by the power of God that is at work in me and I get the joy of sharing that experience with you. But this is what we're called to. It's not pulpit pew relationship. It is one another sharing this is what God has done for me. I'm transformed by his grace and now I'm going to live out that grace to you because it is better, listen to me, to give than it is to receive. So it's not good enough for me just to receive the grace of God. Now I want to share it with those and I want to share what God has given me, that courage, that comfort, that communion, and that compassion. I want to live it out for others. And so what does he say? You've got a job to do. And the job, number one, is to have a resolve to pull together. And what that means is as a church, now we come from all different places. We live in all different neighborhoods. We have all different backgrounds. We all come from different social economic uh, places. We come from different nationalities. We have different likes and dislikes. We're of different generations. And what Paul says is, the church of God is to pull together. And what that means is, is it's not about us, but it's about what we have in common. There's nothing, and hear me out, there's very, let me say, very few things that all of us are going to have in common. But as we sit in this place, there's one thing that brings us together. It's the cross. We've all been saved by the same cross, the same grace, the same Savior. And we are now worshiping him and pursuing fellowship with him. But what that means is, and hear me out, as a part of a church, loving each other to the point of sacrifice means that it's about him, not about me. And so here's the thing. The job of the elders in the church is to make sure that we, the people, don't take our eyes off of that cross. It's always about him. The best way to illustrate what the elders do is if you see a rowing team in a boat. I once tried out for a rowing team and and it caused a little too much inversion and uh, they told me just to sit on the sidelines. And so the elders' job on that rowing team while, while the church is rowing is to be that guy at the front of the boat that's calling out, row, row, row. He's not just sitting there as if they don't know what they're called to do, but they are to set the tempo. They are to set the direction. And they are calling out the commands of the one who's in charge. And so the elder's job is to to say, love each other to the point of sacrifice. Love Jesus to the point of transformation. A constant reminder, that's my job each and every Sunday, is to get up as the spokesman of the elder team and say, let us not forget why we're here. Let us not forget what we're called to do. We are called to love each other to the point of sacrifice. And that means that you in the third row, you can't start rowing whenever you want to. You can't row in in a different direction. You can't start splashing your neighbor with the paddle. You need to be rowing in the same way. And it means a common vision, a common mission, and a common desire to do the things of God, even if it means I've got to sacrifice some of my preferences. To be able to do that, We have to resist selfishness. Paul goes on, he says, okay, if you're going to do this, here's the problem. 
You can't do anything or do nothing from rivalry or conceit. That word rivalry was a first century Greek term that talked about politicians in a heated and embattled uh, campaign. And what politicians in an embattled campaign do is they elevate self and they destroy their opponent. And what Paul says is be careful in your pursuit of rowing in the same direction that you don't start elevating yourself to the demise of the people around you. Stop campaigning that you're more important than others are. Have you ever noticed that when we have preferences with regards to things, one of the main mechanisms that we use to get our preferences across is campaign to others? It's amazing. We can't keep our preferences to ourselves. And so what happens is is we, we start out and we have a problem with something. And the church is too much of this, the church is too much of that, Tim. Tim needs to do this, or Tim needs to do that. And, and we don't keep it to ourselves that, you know, I just wish that they would change those things. No, what we do is we go find a group of people. We go find a group of people who, who like what we're saying. And so we have these little town meetings and, well, you know what? I don't like that either. And then we get a couple more people and then we become the group of people who don't like that thing. We campaign. And Paul says, don't campaign because it's not about you. It's about Jesus. It's about him. And so what we need to do is we need to stop getting the spotlight on us. And here's the thing. When we see it in others, we hate it. Have you ever noticed that? What if I got up and said, you know, you guys are so lucky to have a preacher like me. I mean, come on. Really? I mean, you guys are blessed. I mean, right away, yeah, I want to throw up. People are throwing up in their mouths already. It's so dirty when we see it with others, but when we do it, we seem so justified, so righteous in our response, but we hate it in others. And what this is, is we have to be so very careful because what it comes out of it, he says, is vain conceit, emptiness. We think we're something when we're not. And what usually happens when that takes place is we've taken our eyes off of Jesus and put them on ourselves. We're more worried about ourselves. So notice what Paul says is, hey, you're going to fix that? You're going to have to humble yourself. It means you're going to have to regard others, verse 4, as more important. Let each of us look not only to our own interests. Now let's stop there for a second. It's not that our own interests are bad. But if our interests are trumping everybody else's interests, we've got a problem. You see, it's not bad for dad to want to watch the news program in the house. But if I do so at the demise of my children who are all wanting to do something with their father, then my interests have trumped theirs and I have now lived out selfishness even though that desire isn't bad at all. And so we can look to our own interests but never let them trump the issues of others and so here we see ourselves, and this is a tough one for some of us. Let me just be honest. This is a tough one for me because secretly I believe that I'm better than those around me. Can I tell you something? I think I'm better than you. I do. I think I'm smarter than you. I think I'm more important than you. I think that my ways are better than your ways. You say, wait a minute, that's pretty honest. Yeah, because that's what the human heart says. And here's the thing. I don't think I'm preaching to a bunch of people that don't have that. I think I'm preaching to the choir. I think that's where we're all at. 
because that's where the devil loves to have us at. It's about me. The second it becomes about you is the second that it's not about Jesus anymore. And so we have to be so very careful with this that we regard others as more important. This word uh, to consider others better or to regard others as better was a mathematical term in New Testament Greek. And it meant to think about it and come to a conclusion. Some of us have to get to a point where we say the world doesn't revolve around me. You won't live saying, well, I'll sacrifice today, but tomorrow it's about me. And Let me tell you something. It's not about you. It's not about me. Okay? Notice the next thing that we see, and that is that we need to remember others' needs. Notice verse 4 says, we're to look to the interest of others, is to fix our attention to, to have great interest in. Some of us need to take the, the uh, spotlight off of ourselves and allow others' needs to be lifted up. Here's the thing. Some of us come to church, and we come to church and ask the question, how, are we gonna, how am I going to be blessed? Who's going to bless me? I hope Tim had a good week this week, so he brings a good sermon. I hope that uh, my Sunday school teacher uh, is doing a good job. I hope the kids' uh, ministries are prepared because my kids are going to need that. I hope someone comes and talks to me, and it's me, 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 me. And we laugh about it on the screen. We laugh about it and say, oh, that's so funny. But that's how some of us come into church. What are you going to do for me? And some of you will walk out of this place today and you'll say, I'm not coming back to that place. Nobody talked with me. Nobody encouraged me. Nobody cared about me. And I'm going to stop you right there and I'm going to ask you the question, what did you do? Yeah, some other people blew it. But what did you do? And some of us need to stop and ask the question, what is my church experience going to be like? Is it about me or is it about others? And if it's about others, then I'm going to be on the lookout looking to whom I may serve. And so I'm not going to go and just hang out with my friends because I recognize, well, I'm blessed to have friends, that there's that new couple in church that, that doesn't have any friends. And my goodness, I know what it's like not to have friends. I know what it's like to be in a church where I don't know anything that's going on. And so I'm not going to just go and enjoy my friendship. I'm going to stop and I'm going to look to the interests of others. And I'm going to ask the question, what needs do they have? Instead of wondering if someone's going to ask me if I'm having a good day or not, I'm going to go out on the limb and I'm going to ask someone if they're having a good day and be ready to respond with a follow-up question of how I can help them if their day isn't going the way it needs to be. These are the things that it means to remember others' needs. There's some things we need to confess. We are selfish people. You see, we are the Burger King church. We want it our way right away. And yet God is calling us to sacrifice, not selfishness. He wants us to pursue others out of love instead of pursuing our preferences. But where do we go to do that? Who do we turn to? Paul goes to the best example. Notice that if we are going to get this right, it involves cultivating a relationship that is involving a Christ-like response to others. How do we get there? We cultivate this Christ-like approach to others. Our text moves us, and I'll close with this, a practical truth from a very theological passage. I love this passage that's before us. But instead of focusing on it from a theological standpoint, I want to keep with this thread 
of the practical of loving one another. How do we begin to do it? There are three things. Looking at the example of Christ, how do we begin to serve and love one another to the point of sacrifice? It begins, number one, by you taking the first step. Let's just take a moment and remember what Jesus did. Jesus was in heaven. Jesus was in his glory. He was sitting enthroned. We learned about that last week in Isaiah chapter 6. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is filled with his glory. Angels are just loving on Jesus, worshiping him, saying, you are the greatest, you are awesome, you are powerful, you are merciful, you are godly. All these wonderful attributes, they're just pouring praise on Jesus. And Jesus is the only one who could have sat there and just enjoyed it. He could have just gloried in it. Here's the amazing thing of what Jesus did. Jesus did the first step of what it means to love to the point of sacrifice. He took his eyes off himself. Do you know what that means? God took his eyes off of himself. God had every right to glory in himself and just to be self-absorbed in who he was because he's God. He's the only one that's allowed to do that. He's the only one, listen to me, God is the only one who can be prideful and not sin. So he's exalting himself, but he stops. And he says, I'm not just going to look at myself anymore, but I'm going to look at those who are lost in their sin. And he took his eyes off himself, and where did those eyes go to? To you and me. And he puts his eyes on us. And he doesn't sit there and go, oh, it's too bad, they're in their sin, they're going to die, they're going to experience torment in hell, and that's just a shame. Oh well. Angels, go next chorus. And then they jump into the hallelujah chorus again. He doesn't do that. He takes his eyes off of himself, which is absolutely a mind-boggling thing, and he puts his eyes on us. And he doesn't just sit there and say, oh, that's so sad. But he goes and his compassion and this, literally this sympathy, the undoing of the heart of God says, I'm not going to leave them in their plight, but I'm going to go. And he doesn't just say, I'm going to go send an answer. He says, I am going to go and take their place. Hallelujah to Jesus. And he goes and he says, I'm going to take their place. I'm going to take their shame. I'm going to do it. Now, he doesn't do it with us going, oh, Jesus, come help us. Jesus, Jesus, please come and save us. No, all the while that he's doing that, God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were sinners, we're shaking our fists at God. We're yelling and screaming, God, get out of our lives. While we're doing that, Jesus demonstrates his love for us and makes the first move. Here's the thing. Husbands, your wife may not deserve it, but Jesus says you take the first step. Husbands or wives, your husband may not deserve it, but you are called to take the first step. Church member, that guy that's sitting across the a pew that, that drives you crazy, that has wronged you in such a way, here's what Jesus calls you to do, to take the first step. And to all the while as you're walking over, not gritting your teeth going, I'll do it, Jesus, but I don't like it, but to be saying over and over again, Father, forgive them, for he did not know what he was doing. Jesus, forgive my wife. She doesn't know what she's doing. Jesus, forgive my husband. He doesn't know what he's doing. Jesus, forgive my children. They don't know what they are doing. And I'm going to take the first step, and I am going to love on them. Even though Jesus was God, he did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. He took his eyes off himself, he put them on us, and he did not leave it there, but his heart of sympathy and affection moved to action, and he died on the cross for us.
Number two, you taking the first step. Number two, are you being a servant? Jesus, it says in the text, not only took the first step, but he did the unthinkable. He made himself nothing. Taking the very form of a servant, verse 7 says. How did he do it? By being born in human likeness. There's so much theology here. But let's stick with the practical side and come to the theology class and we'll talk more about the theology of that. But here's the thing. Jesus made himself nothing. The eternal God put skin on. The eternal God knew what it meant to be hungry and thirsty. He knew what it meant to have to sleep. He knew what it meant to experience anguish and grief. He knew all of that and became obedient to that. He did so so that he could serve. He came into the world not to be served, but to serve and be a ransom for many. You see, Jesus teaches us what it means to be a servant. Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, when he was about to share his last supper with his disciples, took an apron and he put it around his waist and Jesus took a water basin and he took a towel and he began to go and wash the feet of his disciples I want you to write this down you know what sacrificial service looks like sacrificial service is you who are clean becoming dirty for someone else Jesus was clean But he wanted to become dirty for his disciples and wash their feet. Here's the other thing. Sacrificial service means going low so others may be lifted up. You see, when we see Jesus, we see that sacrificial service means though you are rich, you become poor. Though you are first, you become last. Though you are great in God's kingdom, you become a servant of all. You see, when we get that mindset of what it means to be a servant, when we're willing to get dirty so someone might be clean, that's the redemption story, by the way. He who knew no sin became sin on our behalf that we might have the righteousness of Christ. Christ became dirty so we could become clean. And what service is, is us getting dirty. You don't have to tell a mom that who's got a newborn baby. She knows what it's like to change diapers. Why is she doing that? So her kid doesn't come around smelling all the time and just stinking up the whole place. So mom's willing to get her hands dirty, no pun intended, to get in there on behalf of someone else to clean them up. That's what Christian service and sacrifice is all about. It's about us becoming low so others may be lifted up. It is so that we might be last so others can be first. And that is what Jesus does. He serves And he calls us to that as well. But notice in this word sacrifice, it means sacrificing it all. Notice he became obedient to death, even a death on a cross. When we talk about loving each other to the point of sacrifice, it's not talking about loving each other 10% of the way or half of it. It's not sitting there and saying, well, I think I can make a little time for sacrifice. I think I can do it. Jesus could have come up with a myriad of reasons why he didn't want to go to the cross, but he was all in. And sacrifice means we're giving our all, that we are going to do all that we can. And some of us have some decisions to make today. Is it about us or is it about Christ and his glory being transformed in us so that we might transform the lives of those around us? And when we begin to do that, God is honored. God is glorified. Notice what happens with his son, and I'll close with this. Therefore, God has exalted, verse 9, 
him, Jesus, and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee would bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. When we serve and we live and love to the point of sacrifice, God will exalt us in his proper time. But here is why he does it. To the glory of God the Father. When we love each other to the point of sacrifice, the world will take notice and they will see that we are Christians by our love and God will receive glory. So let's do it. Let's ask the Spirit's help to empower us so that we may love one another to this point of sacrifice. But it means getting our eyes off of ourselves, putting them on Jesus, and when our eyes are on Jesus, it's amazing how the needs of others come into full view. Let's go ahead and pray. Father God, we just thank you for this time in your word. And Lord, I pray that it has been a blessing to all. Lord, I know it's been a blessing to me this week. Because I need to be reminded to get my eyes off of myself and to put them back on you. To regard others as more important than myself. Lord, to push away my preferences so that I may serve and and honor those and esteem them more than I do my own feelings and desires. Lord, we do this because we say we want to be like your son Jesus. And so, Lord, I pray that we would live like this. Transform our hearts this morning. As we head out into a dog-eat-dog world, Lord, that we would recognize and know that you have called us to be the least so that one day we might receive great reward. Lord, we desire that. We want that. We want it because it brings you glory. And so, Lord, I pray that you would lead us and empower us and, and convict our hearts to love each other to the point of sacrifice. Lord, we know that it can only happen through the unity of the Spirit, through the bond of peace. So we pray your Spirit's leading and your Spirit's protection over us as a people. And so, Lord, we give that to you. In Christ's name we pray. And all God's people said, Amen.